All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Paul writes, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." All right, so we're getting the sex talk this morning, okay? <laughs> Don't know how, how else to, to discuss this chapter. <laughs> this is the sex talk in the Bible. Um, so here we are back in 1 Corinthians. Just a little recap from where we were. Uh, when we were here last, uh, which would have been three weeks ago, right? Uh, we, are, we looked at the end of chapter 6 verses 12 through 20. And now we are at the beginning of the section, the second major section of Paul's letter to Corinth. So it might be a little helpful just to kind of see where we've been before so that we could see where we're going in the future. So chapters 1 through 6 of 1 Corinthians uh, is Paul's response to a report that he received, either written or verbal, we're not exactly sure, a report that he received from members of Chloe's household. So if you remember from the very beginning, he said, I heard this report from the uh, members of Chloe's household regarding the divisions. So this, this report received from the household of Chloe, and it was a report that was brought to the apostles' attention. And it brought some, to, I should say, it brought to his attention some very serious lapses in behavior within the Corinthian church. As we've seen through various you know, studies in the past, there were active divisions in this church. There was fighting, there was strife, there was contentions as the members within the Corinthian church were forming factions. And they were forming these factions over popular uh, teachers within the church. Some were following Paul, some were following Apollos, some were following Peter. So he had these divisions in the church. We also saw in chapters 5 and 6 a breakdown in church discipline. The church is meant to exercise this discipline through its leadership to make sure that the body of Christ, the church, the local church, is sanctified, that, that sin is dealt with, and that's something that the Corinthian church was not doing. In chapter 5, we saw of a man who had an open, sinful relationship with his father's wife, something that, as we saw, not even the Corinthians 
would, you know, they, the, something that even the Corinthian people would find revol- uh, revolting. We saw believers were taking trivial matters within the church between believers and bringing them before secular judges to, to adjudicate and not having them be adjudicated within the church. So they were sort of airing the dirty laundry within the church into unrighteous secular civil courts. And then, of course, as we saw last time three weeks ago, there were instances of men within the church engaging in sexual immorality with prostitutes outside of the church in Corinth. So Paul spends the first six chapters of this letter dealing with these breakdowns in Christian behavior by essentially reminding them of their privileged status as saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how he opens this letter. He opens this letter by greeting them, you are saints. You are saints of Jesus Christ. You are the ones who are set apart. You are the ones who are called by Christ, set apart for His services. You are sanctified by the Lord. He says, now you know, I'm reminding you of this position that you have before Christ so you can then get your behavior to sort of come into line with the profession that you have made. So now we are entering the second half of Paul's letter, starting in chapter 7. And Paul here now will begin addressing a list of questions that the Corinthians had for Paul. So if you, again, if you remember um, that Paul spent a good deal of time with this church. He spent, according to Acts 18, 18 months with them. Now, it's impossible, though, even in 18 months to learn everything there is you need to know about the Christian faith, right? I mean, some of us have been Christians most of our lives, and we're still learning things about the Christian faith. So they had some questions that they wanted to address to Paul. And you could see how this works out, because you know how our passage begins in chapter 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. You see similar phrases in chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols. Or chapter 11, verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Or verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Or verse 12, chapter 1. Now concerning the spiritual gifts. Or now even all the way up to 15, verse 1. Now moreover, brethren, I declare the gospel to you which I preach to you. Where he talks about the resurrection. So he's, they have all these questions regarding marriage, and singleness regarding uh, food sacrifice to idols and Christian liberty, regarding spiritual gifts, particularly the, the gift of tongues and prophecy, uh, regarding uh, the proper order in worship, regarding the, the resurrection. All of these questions are coming up. And they're going to, they bring them to Paul, and Paul is going to address them. He's going to go through them, each in order, and give his own apostolic answer to them. Now, as we head into the passage here this morning, uh, verses 1 through 9, I want to express a thought that's going to govern our discussion going forward. Okay, this is something like an umbrella thought that I want to sort of put over everything we're going to look at from chapter 7 on to the end of the book. And basically, it's this faulty thinking leads to faulty uh, action or practice. Faulty thinking leads to faulty practice. If you don't know the truth, you can't practice the truth. 
And if you have a mistaken impression of the truth, it's going to affect the way you behave. That should stand to reason. Faulty thinking leads to faulty practice. Now what we saw in the first six chapters was faulty practice. Right? Divisions in the church. Uh, sexual immorality in the church. Bickering and contentions and strife in the church. All of this faulty action. How does Paul address that? Particularly like this section on divisions in the church. How does he address those divisions in the church? Do you remember? He reminds them of the... Begins with the letter G. Ends in ospel. <laughs> right? The gospel, right? He talks about the gospel, how the gospel is the cure for all this. He brings them back to correct thinking. It's like your behavior is off. I need to remind you how to think so you can behave rightly. So many of the sins that the Corinthians were guilty of in chapters 1-6 through are a result of their bad theology, which now we're going to see Paul address in the rest of this chapter. The rest of the book really kind of addresses faulty thinking. And if he can get the thinking right, then the practice will follow. For example, Paul will spend all of chapter 7 dealing with issues of sex, marriage, singleness, widowhood, and divorce. And consider how correct thinking in these areas would then bleed into some of the issues that we saw already. Right? If you have a correct understanding of Christian marriage, singleness, widowhood, divorce, then that should keep you from the, the sins that we saw particularly in chapter 5 and at the end of chapter 6. Right? You're not going to have sexual relationships with your father's wife, and you're not going to go out and have sex with prostitutes like they were doing. So let's then delve into the world of love and marriage, which is kind of, I'm, I kind of had that song, right? Isn't that the theme song from, I forget what goofy TV show that was, but it's also a song, right? I think uh, Sinatra did it, right? Love and marriage, love and marriage. Go together like a horse and carriage, right? Isn't that how that goes? <laughs> okay. So we're going to delve into the world of love and marriage. Now again, like I said, I had intended to get through chapter six, or verse 16. <laughs> you should know better, right? <laughs> you're going to get up to the verse 9 and you're going to like it. Okay, verse 9. So anyway, first we're going to look in verse 1 at the Corinthian question. So he starts this section by saying, you know, concerning the things of which you wrote, and then he's got a phrase there. So as we already saw earlier how Paul begins the passage uh, answering a question, let's look at it again in verse 1 where he says again, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So he begins the second part of his letter by addressing issues about which the Corinthians wrote. Again, remember they had questions, they wrote to him, so he's going to knock these questions off one by one. And as noted in a previous lessons, we know that according to Acts chapter 18, Paul spent, as we said earlier, 18 months, a year and a half, ministering to the people in the town of Corinth. He was teaching them the Word of God. He was spending time with them. He was ministering to them, dealing with them, and so on and so forth. And then when Paul was gone, right, Apollos comes in, and Apollos ministers there as well. And apparently, at some point in his life, Peter ministered in Corinth. 
Now, outside of his time in Ephesus, this 18-month period that Paul was at Corinth was the longest place he'd ever been in one, in one location. Right? You read through the book of Acts, Paul is constantly being chased away from, from places he goes. So he goes. He was in Thessalonica for what amounted to about three weeks. He said, I was there for three Sabbaths. And then the people came and chased me out because they didn't like what I was teaching. And then he goes to the next town in Berea. And then the people in Thessalonica hear that he's there. And they follow him down to Berea and chase him out from there and chase him off to Athens. So, you know, Paul did not, was not able, at least by God's providence, to spend too much time in many of these locations. But if, if you're in Acts 18, he gets a vision from Christ that says, you will minister here. You know, stay here, don't leave, stay here, don't leave, because there are many souls that, I, that are mine that I want you to minister to while, the, while you're here. So he was there for 18 months. Now, again, as I said earlier, even after 18 months with the Apostle Paul teaching you, it's not surprising that they still had some questions. In fact, we see in the writer, uh, the author of Hebrews says that the Word of God is what? It is living and active. This Bible that we have in our hands, even though it's a book, is living and active because it contains the very words of God in it. It is living and active. So it's no surprise that if you read through the Bible regularly and if you reread it and reread it, you're going to be exposed to new things or things that you hadn't recalled for some time or new insights that you hadn't seen before as you read through God's Word. So it's no surprise that they had questions. No one of us will ever say in this lifetime, got it. I got everything I need to know. I don't need to learn anymore. I, I, I'm, I'm there. I'm at the top of the mountain, theologically speaking. No one's ever going to say that. No one's ever going to say that. So we shouldn't look down at the Corinthians for having questions. Right? You know, you go to the classroom and the teacher gives you the classic line, there are no dumb questions. Right? except the one that you don't ask. So it's not surprising that there are questions, and we shouldn't fault them for having questions. They are doing the right thing. If you have a question about something in the Bible, they are doing exactly what you should do. You ask somebody who knows more to give you some help. They're asking Paul to give them some help. Now the next part of verse 1 is the content, essentially, of the question they want to ask Paul, they want Paul to address where it says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now I know we have a few people here who are using the English Standard Version. And is that phrase in quotes for you? Right, that phrase is in quotes. It is commonly believed by biblical scholars that this idea here, the phrase, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, is not Paul's words. He is citing what the Corinthians wrote to him. So the Corinthians are saying to Paul, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, right? That's why, you know, so some translations, in fact, every other translation other than the New King James and King James has this in quotes. And that phrase there, to touch, that's a euphemism. That is another way of saying sexual relations. In fact, I don't even, does the ESV say sexual relations? Okay. So it's not like you're going up to your, you know, your woman and you're like just, <laughs> I'm touching my wife. You know, it's, it's, he's, he's referring to sexual relations. So this is another one of those slogans or sayings like we saw in chapter 6, right? Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. 
or other things like that. These are things that the Corinthians had in mind. So they thought it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And they were asking Paul, right? Can, can you confirm that for us? Now, if we're talking about extramarital sexual relations, such as what we saw in chapter 5, verse 1, is such as what we saw in chapter 6, verse 13, yes, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a husband not to touch a woman other than his wife. But, if we're talking in the context of marriage, we'll see it is not a good thing not to touch your wife. So I'm using a double negative there, right? You know, when you use a double negative, it what? It makes a positive, right? So it is good not to not touch your wife if, you're, if you are within the context of a marriage covenant. Now, we can't be absolutely certain why this notion was being entertained by the Corinthians, but we can hazard a guess. We kind of looked at this idea before in the past regarding their, uh, this Greco-Roman view of the body. This, you know, again, Corinth was a, a cosmopolitan city. It was a center of culture. It was a center of entertainment. It was a center of... Uh, commerce. It was a center of philosophical development and thought. So, and, and they were very much ingrained with this Greco-Roman way of thinking in which the body was bad, the spirit was good, and it was you strived or you strove to, to be separated from the prison house of the body so that you can be a disembodied spirit and, and enjoy all of the, you know, the life the way it was meant to be. That was their way of thinking. So anything associated with the body was bad. Now we saw this in context earlier, whereas you know, the people were like, since the body is bad, it doesn't matter what I do to it. Let's just have sex with whoever. Let's just feed it with food. Because the body doesn't matter. Here's the other end of that spectrum. The body doesn't matter, therefore we're going to avoid sexual contact whatsoever. So you get this idea of asceticism. Okay, that... Uh, that's A-S-C-E-T-I-C-I-S-M. Asceticism or an ascetic. Someone who avoids uh, fleshly pleasures. Someone who, who avoids eating you know, too much food. Someone who avoids sexual contact. You, you try to stay pure in your body. You don't, you don't engage in any of this. Now, like the problem that we saw at the end of chapter 6, this too comes from a faulty view of the body and the soul. A very pagan view of the body and the soul. Almost a Gnostic view of the body and the soul, even though Gnosticism wasn't exactly developed fully by this time. It is sort of leaning into that direction. But it's a very pagan view of the body. So the same erroneous view of the body which led some Corinthians to justify sex with prostitutes also led some in Corinth to reject sex altogether even within the bonds of marriage. Again, the view of the body as lesser or evil leads some to disdain sex altogether as evil, so it is best to avoid it in any case. So that's the question before Paul. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And Paul's going to, direct, he's going to address that now as we look at the answer here for the married in verses 2-7. through seven. So the nevertheless there that you see in verse 2 is meant to sort of refute or to signal that Paul is going to 
um, argue against this point of view that they brought up in verse 1. So let's look at verse 2. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. So Paul notes here, because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The Corinthians were arguing because of sexual immorality, they should abstain from sexual contact. They should abstain from sexual relations completely. In other words, you can't be guilty of sexual immorality if you don't engage in it at all, right? If there's nothing going on, you could say, well, I'm not engaging in sexual immorality. But Paul's answer here is within the bonds of marriage, sexual activity is not only not wrong, it is the way for a married couple to avoid sexual immorality. You can't be tempted to go outside of marriage to satisfy your desires if your desires are being felt, met and, and uh, satisfied within the bonds of marriage. And here that wording of having, right, having her own husband, having his own wife, is not only expressed as an imperative or as a command, uh, but it, it is also a euphemism because, again, this idea of having means to have in a kind of a sexual connotation, a sexual relationship. And then finally, note here where he says, have his own wife or her own husband. This refers to each married man and his wife, and to each married woman and her husband. If you remember back last time we looked at this chapter in chapter 6, Paul had already referenced Genesis 2.24 in reference to the idea of having sex with a harlot. He says, don't you know that when you have sex with a harlot, you are engaging in a one flesh relationship with her? Because that's what God said all the way at the beginning in the book of Genesis. The man shall leave his father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh. The institution of the covenant of marriage. And Paul is bringing that idea forward now into chapter 7. A man leaves his parents and cleaves to his wife. Likewise, the woman leaves her parents and cleaves to her husband. And this is God's glorious design for marriage between a man and a woman. Sexual relations are not inherently wrong or sinful. And within the marriage union, they are good and proper. It's because of the fall that we have all kinds of sexual sin and perversions and all kinds of abominations regarding sex. And you, you know, I don't need to go through the list, right? Just turn on the news, <laughs> Right? Turn on cable. Watch TV. You see it all over the place. I don't need to tell you. And I don't need to pollute the recording by telling you. You know what's out there. You know the ways that sex is perverted in our news, in our culture, in our entertainment. We take God's good gifts, right? And we pervert them. That's what the fall does. The fall takes the good things that God gives and perverts them. Because when he created man and woman in the garden, what did he say at the end of that? It is what? Not just good. Very good. 
And then later on in chapter 2, when, when Adam sees his wife, when he sees Eve, he is, he is in joy. He says, this is indeed bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he says, I will call her woman because she was taken out of man. And it's a play on the Hebrew words, ish for woman or man and isha for, for woman. Within the marriage union, sex is a good and proper thing. The fall perverts that. In fact, within Greco-Roman society, it, was, it would not at all be uncommon for men to have many concubines and mistresses. That's how the culture was in that day. right? You had, you had the woman, you, you married a woman to have legitimate children. That's all it was for. Then you would go outside of the marriage, you'd have concubines and harlots and so on and so forth to satisfy your own whatever sexual desires. The woman was there to have legitimate offspring to pass on your heritage to. Everything else was for fun. Marriage was not a blessed one flesh union expressing the love of Christ for his bride, the church. Marriage was simply for the purpose of producing legitimate offspring. And then sex outside of marriage with either concubines or prostitutes was for pleasure. And I have to also make note, this was a one-way street. Right, it was only the men that get to do this, not the women. Okay, so there was no equality going on here. We should not you know, uh, try to delude ourselves with this. This is only for the men to enjoy. But Paul says an emphatic no. Marriage is a one flesh union between one man, one woman, and the only vehicle for sexual activity. Everything else is immorality. Now he continues in verses 3 and 4. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now we might not see it here, as I just read those verses, but what Paul said here would be extremely countercultural, extraordinarily countercultural. Paul says to the husband, render to your wife the affection due to her. And a similar exhortation is given to the wife. Now that phrase, render the affection, is, various trans- is variously translated. Again, you ESV users, you probably have conjugal rights. Right? Let the husband render or pay to his wife her conjugal rights. The NASB says, fulfill his duty to his wife. The NIV and the Christian Standard Bible say, fulfill his marital duty. So, what do you think is being referred to here? What's the duty? <laughs> right? It's, it's to engage in, in, in the one flesh union. To not deprive one another. Some of the modern translations focus on sexual rights, uh, but it seems here the, in, in the New King James, there's a word that is not in some of those other translations. It's the word eunoia, and it can, covers the full range of marital love and affection. It's not just sex, okay? It's not just saying, okay, husbands have sex with your wives. Because you can do that in an unloving, unaffectionate way. Right, it's sort of like you're performing. Okay, let's go, you know, 
got to do it, you know, it's, you know, and then you do it, and then you're like, okay, and there's, that wasn't much fun. No, it's, it's also saying love, affection, not just sex for the sake of sex. But it's the reason for the commands in verse 3 that would shock Paul's reader. Because you look at verse 4, the first half of it is not controversial. At least it wouldn't be for the people in Corinth. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And all, of course, and then in Corinth, all the men would rise up and say, Amen. <laughs> right? The wife does not control her own body. The husband does. I'm the husband. I control my wife's body. And then Paul goes on to say, And, and the husband does not control his own body, but the wife does. Right? That's what he says there. The, the wife, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That second half of the verse is the shocking part. The husband's body does not belong to his wife. Mutual ownership of husband and wife echoes the sentiment of what we read in the Song of Solomon, verse 6, chapter 3, where the um, woman says, I am my beloved's and my, and my beloved is mine. Right? That's often a common... Actually, I think my, my daughter and her son-in-law have that verse sort of like over somewhere in their house i am my beloved's and my beloved is mine mutual ownership again one flesh union you are not your own you belong to your spouse both sides and then paul summarizes in verse five where he says here Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you for your lack of self-control. So because of what Paul says in verses 3 and 4, what verse 5 commands then is necessarily follows. Since you do not belong to yourself but to your spouse... Since the husband does not belong to himself but belongs to his wife, since the wife does not belong to herself but belongs to her husband, then do not deprive one another. And the word there for deprive literally means to defraud, to steal. Do not steal affection from your spouse. Do not defraud your spouse of affection. Marriage is a one flesh union. I'm saying that, it sounds like a broken record. It is a one flesh union in which the wife does not have authority over her own body and the husband does not have authority over his own body. Do not deprive or defraud one another from the affection due to each other. Now, Paul then goes on to give an exception to the above rule, right? And that exception is for a season of fasting and prayer. He says, except, right, verse 5, except, okay, except with a consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. So in Exodus 19.15, that's the, the Israelites are out of Egypt. They're on their way. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And as I've mentioned this before, at the beginning of chapter 19, you know, God comes down in the smoke and the fire, and there's this pyrotechnic light show on the top of Mount Sinai, and the people tremble. And then God tells Moses, he says, consecrate the people, for in three days I will meet with them. And then Moses goes around the camp in verse 15 of chapter 19 and tells the people to consecrate themselves by not going near their wives. In other words, stay apart for a period of time, because we're all going to be meeting with God. 
Refrain from sexual relations for a time as God is coming near to His people. And here Paul echoes that thought when he says that the only reason you can withhold marital affections is for a season of fasting and prayer. Now note the four criteria that Paul gives here for this. It must be my mutual consent. Right? No one member of the marriage can say, I'm going to commit to fasting and prayer. And then the other member says, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that. So it has to be a mutual consent. You need to come together and say, we need to do this. We need to do this together. And it's like, okay. The time of the abstaining is limited for a time. Right? For a time. The reason for the abstaining is for religious observance, for a time of fasting and prayer. And then fourth and finally, there must be a coming together again. You must then reunite after you've taken a time of abstention for fasting and prayer. And the reason this must be limited is due to the temptations of the evil one, right? So that you may not be uh, tempted because of your lack of self-control. Now in a sense, right, this kind of gives the lie to the notion that you see in the Roman Catholic Church about clerical celibacy, right? Where the priesthood is supposed to be perpetually um, celibate in their service. What they're doing is, in a sense, they're denying the urges and the physical urges and desires that you have in the body. There is no scriptural command for clerical celibacy, And unless one is given the gift of singleness, as we'll see in just a moment, the notion of a celibate clergy is ripe for temptation. How many stories have you heard of the goings-on in the Roman Catholic Church with priests and children or priests and women or whatever? I mean, if you go through the history of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, the popes had mistresses, you know, <laughs> that happened during the Reformation, during the time of Luther. It was, it was a very common practice. The priests and the pope himself would have mistresses and so on and so forth. No, this idea of perpetual celibacy is not scriptural. And then notice this notion here of a temporary abstinence, Paul says, is a concession. He says this is a concession in verse 6, where he says, I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. And he goes on in verse 7, For I wish that all men were even as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So abstinence for prayer and fasting is not commanded. It's, as Paul says, it's a concession. It is a concession. It is something Paul doesn't want to forbid, but he's not going to command either. And the the reason it's not commanded is because, again, of the one flesh nature of the marriage relationship. It is a relationship in which sex and physical intimacy is celebrated and enjoyed. Now, what Paul says in verse 7 is a desire on Paul's part, not sort of a disparagement of marriage. Because what he says in verse 7 can lead some to think, well, maybe Paul has a low view of of marriage. right? Because he says, for I wish that all were even as I myself am. In other words, Paul was at this point in his life single. Now, we're not sure, but there's a very good indication that Paul was probably a widower. Because Paul would, you know, he was a Jew. 
And in the Jewish culture, you married, right? If you weren't married in the Jewish culture, you were looked down upon because of the command to be fruitful and multiply was very seriously taken in the Jewish culture. Plus, Paul was a Pharisee. It would have been almost unheard of for Paul not to have been married. But if Paul is single here now, more than likely then he is a widower. His wife has passed on. So when he says, for I wish that all were even as I myself am, he is, he is expressing a desires part that all were sort of single. And we'll get to that in a moment, as he was. He is here, what he is doing, he is, he is not disparaging marriage, but he's extolling, in a sense, the value of singleness. And though marriage is the norm for the vast majority of people, it's not for everyone. Not everyone has the gift of marriage. Some enjoy the gift of singleness, either for short or longer periods of time. Now he's going to expand on this a little later uh, in verses 25 and following. But if if you think about it, if you're single, what does that allow you to do in the church? Yeah, you could serve and you have no other obligations because you're single. You don't have a wife, you don't have kill or, or a husband, and you don't have children. You have no other obligations. You can you can focus almost entirely on ministry in the kingdom of God, whether at you know at the church level through you know ordained offices or out as a missionary in the field or as a teacher in a school, whatever the case may be. If you are single, you have no other obligations. You can go anywhere. You could do anything, right? I think of one of my favorite professors back at Mid-America, Mark Vanderhart, is a single man. And that allows him to do so much for the kingdom of God. It's like, you know, at the drop of a hat, he can just travel and do a pulpit supply, or he can go overseas and teach a class, or he can devote himself to the kingdom of God. You should not look down upon him because he is not married. It's not for everyone. Paul, But Paul recognizes this is a gift, Right? Uh, not everyone has this gift. Each one has his own gift, one in this manner, one in that manner. Paul recognizes that singleness is a gift. The sexual impulse in us is natural, and it is a strong lure, and not everyone can remain single. Jesus says that, right, in, in the Gospels, when he talks about some men are able to be eunuchs, some are made eunuchs, and some are eunuchs for the kingdom of God. In other words, it's, it's a gift. Not everyone is called to be married. Some are called, I mean, Jesus was single. So, I mean, God incarnate (laughs) was single. He is not disparaging marriage, but he's also extolling the benefits of what a single person can do for the kingdom of God. And now briefly, in the time that we have left, I want to look at verses 8 and 9 as Paul now answers the question that was asked in verse 1 to the unmarried, those who are not married, in verses 8 and 9. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now there's some debate among scholars as to whether the word there, unmarried, it's the word agamos. Gamos is the word for marriage, so you put the alpha on the front, that means it's negation. Unmarried. Whether this means someone who has never been married or someone who is a widower, we're not sure. Most English translations go with unmarried, which really, if you think about it, unmarried kind of covers all the bases, right? If you're a widower, you're no longer married. If you're single and never been married, you're unmarried. So it kind of covers all of the bases. 
And we already mentioned Paul at this point in his life is currently single. And Paul here is saying that contrary to Jewish and Roman culture, both were very strong on marriage. In fact, both saw not being married as something wrong. Paul is saying it's okay, it's even good if you are single. We often unintentionally or sometimes intentionally stigmatize the unmarried. You know, you look at someone who's, if they're past a certain age, whatever that age may be, let's say 35, all right? If you look at a single person who's 35, never been married, sometimes in the back of that head that your, your thoughts are saying, is there something wrong with this person? <laughs> it's like, what's wrong with this person? Are, are they maybe not heterosexual? Or are they not attracted to the opposite sex or whatever? You, you know, these thoughts go in here and you're like, whoa, this poor person, and you want to start fixing them up or something. We often stigmatize the unmarried. Paul here is saying that it can be a good thing. Marriage is a good thing, but being single can also be a good thing. As long as they have, as Paul will say, the God-given gift of singleness. But if you're single, you shouldn't think of yourself as less than or as broken. Again, as we said, think of the, your capacity to serve the kingdom of God unhindered by other things that would kind of keep you uh, locked in, in, a, in one location. If you're single, you can serve the, uh, the kingdom to a much greater capacity than anyone who is married. And that's not to disparage marriage again. But Paul will say here, though, if you do not have the gift, if you are unable to exercise self-control, then you need to marry. You should seek to get married. Again, as we said earlier, the sexual desire within all of us uh, is a strong desire. Some, in some, it's a greater, stronger desire than in others, but it's still a very strong lure and desire. And Paul here uses the verb to burn, and the New King James adds the words with passion. In other words, Paul is talking about an overwhelmingly strong sexual desire that needs release. Better to get married than to you know, suffer perpetual frustration and angst and, you know, the physical whatever that's going on with your body here. It says, if you can't exercise self-control, then get married. Because if you don't, what's, what's, the, what's the other options, right? You start, you know, as the old song goes, looking for love in all the wrong places, right? If you don't marry, then you're going to express that desire in some sinful way. It is marriage which is the vehicle that God has given to express sexual uh, relations. So that's, that's it for this morning. I'm up on time. Uh, next week on the 10th, we will look at verses 10 through 16 as Paul's going to address the issue of divorce.